listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 314, and today we are talking about books being released on June 8th, 2021, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Vanessa Diaz, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello, Vanessa. Hi, friend. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? I'm good. It's like it was so nice and warm in Portland for a few days and I was loving it. And then this morning I woke up and it's raining in like 60s. So I'm a little bit sad face, but I mean, it's fine. (laughs) It's been over 90 here the last couple of days. I know. It's very unpleasant, but I did get, I'm get or I am, it's on the way. I'm getting an air conditioning unit for my office so I can cool it off before we start recording and maybe that will help. Uh, my computer because it likes to overheat while we're recording. <laughs> no, <laughs> I know that spaceship noise. Yep, yeah. very well. <laughs> Even my computer can't handle how much I talk about books. It's like, oh, just stop. You I've had again. enough. <laughs> <laughs> so that's exciting news. Let's see. Everything is green and lovely and yeah. flowering, which I like a lot. Uh, I finished Mayor of East Town. Like most people. Okay, we need to have an off conversation about this another day because I yeah. have questions for how I can handle it because I want to uh, watch it. But <laughs> yeah, I like here. Here's my my thoughts on Mary Uh The acting is phenomenal. I mean, Kate heard. Winslet and and Gene Smart are incredible. I'm I'm now watching Gene Smart's other show, Hacks, which I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. It's really the mystery is really compelling. It is so full of holes and like problems that like. Ugh. But the acting and okay. the the mystery like makes it worth it, you know. Like you just keep going, well, you know. And then at the end, I was like, this and this and this and this and this and this. And my husband, <laughs> he does this every time. He's like, can't you just enjoy it? Can't you? <laughs> but I have so many questions. Like I need answers. <laughs> yeah, but I'm happy to answer questions, you know, for you after we finish recording because it, oh, Kate Winslet. Oh my goodness, I love her. Like to the moon and back, which is partially yeah. like main the main reason why I want to watch it. She might be from the moon. She's just like this oh, ethereal being who can do anything. I heart her so much. I heard she like really nailed that Philly accent. That she's just so she's just so versatile. I heart her. Yeah, that's what I was reading, and apparently it's like one of the hardest accents to do. Oh, if you had asked me straight up what it was, I would have gotten that very wrong. I would like <laughs> southern mixed with yeah, which I that is no disrespect. Yeah. I just I'm not familiar. <laughs> Well, I mean, on top of being a phenomenal actress, like, I've often heard that Australian accents are very hard to do. Mm-hmm. Like, if like Australians have complaints with everyone who does an Australian <laughs> accent. So I wonder if because she's Australian, she's able to nail it so well. Like, is there some correlation there? Like, she can just do these really hard accents, like, you know, or not, well, it's her accent, but, like, do this hard accent, you know, that, that no one seems... I mean, like, people from Philadelphia... I don't think I knew she was Australian. I thought she was totally, like, straight-up British. Oh, I thought she was Australian. Am I losing my mind? Do you know who, I don't know if this is who you're thinking of, but because I made this mistake for years, Kate Blanchett is Australian. And yeah, I thought she I was English this whole she time. She is, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I think I was confused because All the her, first movie was a, her first movie was an Australian movie yep. because she played the author Anne Perry in Heavenly Creatures. That's true. Well then, I'm just making stuff up. Book Riot movie hour, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so now, she, so now she can just do like any accent. She's amazing. Amazing. Well, yeah. now we've done that. <laughs> it's all good. And then I watched a commercial uh, last night while I was watching the Bruins game. Uh, there was a commercial with Kate McKinnon. I was like, I'm just all about the Kates right now. They're, yeah, the Kates are great. I, I Yeah, I do love many a Kate. That's it. I'm like thinking about it now. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey. Yeah. 
This is a Kate appreciation <laughs> exactly. podcast now. If we could name our show, <laughs> which we don't because we go by episodes, but yeah, it would be like the Kate appreciation show. Yeah. But now we're going to do a book appreciation show. Indeed. We are going to talk about some awesome books. Uh, many of these I read a long time ago, so I hope I remember all the details correctly. <laughs> You know, we're almost to the point where that missing notebook from last year is, like, obsolete. So now I have all my notes all right. from this year. So <laughs> I just, I have no idea where it went. It, you know, I know it's hard to believe that I could lose a little skinny notebook in between 3,000 3, books in my yeah. house. But <laughs> Somehow. I think the, the Kates took it. <laughs> I'm still in case. So the cats took it. Uh, it's, you know, oh my goodness, the heat is melting my brain. I'm sorry. Uh, before it melts anymore, let's hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I am so excited about this first book. I'm so excited about all my books, but I love a good sci-fi Western story, and this one just nails it. It is called Ten Low by Stark Holborn, and it is an epic nerd purr. Just amazing. The blurb for this book promised that it was Dune meets Firefly, and having never read Dune, but knowing that there's a lot of desert I would say, okay, and yes to the Firefly fly comparison, and I would also add, like, a side of Mad Max to that comparison. It did not disappoint. So in this story, Ten Lo is an ex-army medic who lives on this desert wasteland planet at the edge of the universe. Like, there's very few people there, and it's usually, like, people who have something to hide or criminals, uh, and she's been out there just, like, hanging out, doing her own thing. Uh, she was part of an interstellar war years ago uh, and was on the losing side. Uh, and so now she just travels alone and she keeps to herself. And one day she's walking through the desert, you know, lugging all her things. And this spacecraft falls from the sky and crashes basically right in front of her. And then this is where it becomes a lesson in no good deed goes unpunished for Tenlo. Because she rescues the people inside the spacecraft. The pilot is dead. But the survivor of the wreckage is a 13-year-old girl that has markings that Tenlo immediately recognizes as those of a child soldier. Uh, that means that this girl has been modified and trained to be a deadly weapon. And, and this, is, this was done by the opposition, the side that Tenlo fought against in the war. And the child comes around and she can tell like from her, her markings and her uniform that she's also a general. Uh, and this this is a 13-year-old general named Gabriela Ortiz, but she just goes by the general in the book 
and she wakes up, but she doesn't know what's happened, but she's ready to fight Tenlo. She's like, I recognize you as the enemy. Let's fight. And Tenlo is like, yeah, you're kind of injured. And also your spacecraft just crashed and you don't know where you are. And, you know, let's let's not fight. So she strikes a deal with the general. Because, you know, Tenlo is a medic and this girl is hurt and she's still a child, you know. So Tenlo tells her that she will help her find the military base that she was looking for. That was where the general spacecraft was headed. Uh, she will help her find that military base uh, in return for medical supplies. But, like, moments after they strike this deal, uh, here come some deadly scavengers who have seen the smoke and they're, they're coming for them. And they have to take off and things only get worse for them from there. They're already running... From these these like scary people who are kind of reaverish if you if you watch Firefly, uh, and the they get to, and this is not a spoiler this is right in the description they find out when they get to the general's rendezvous point they eventually make it there it was actually an assassination attempt like they the army that the general belongs to is ready to decommission its child soldiers so when she gets there they attempt to kill her so now they're on the run again. The duo is on the run from the army, and they're on the run from scavengers, and Tenlo is running from her past, which we'll learn more about later in the book, uh, and they make some more enemies along the way before the book is over. They meet up with some of Tenlo's old friends who try and help them uh, while they figure out like what they're going to do and how they can get the army to stop looking for the general. And like I said, the secrets that Tenlo is hiding come out. They come to light. So can these two outlaws on the run ever find a place they feel safe again? And also, will the general ever stop being a brat? I loved this book. Part of the reason I loved it is because the general is a brat basically for the whole book. Like, just because Ten is helping her, it doesn't mean that she has to like her. And so she's kind of a, a surly jerk to Ten the whole book. But, like, I found it kind of endearing and pretty funny. I love a reluctant ro partner road trip story, uh, which is probably why Midnight Run is, like, my favorite movie of all time. I also love that the action is nonstop. It's lots of fun. There's gunfights and cruiser chases, and there's tons of dirty dealings and double crossings. You know, it's just a really fun, futuristic, wild west. Uh, so I loved this book. I have not read anything else by Stark Holborn, but I believe they have a series. What is it called? It's called, like, oh, Nunslinger. It's like gunslinging nuns. Like, I have to uh, get my hands on this and read that as well. So I want to give content warnings for this for futuristic violence, of course, because it's a sci-fi thing. There's crashes, fires, uh, there's uh, war, PTSD, physical violence, uh, murder, and mentions of assault. That is 10 Low by Stark Holborn. That sounds phenomenal. I was scratching it down on my list. So much fun! Yes. I was literally writing it down while you were talking. I'm like, okay, stop writing. Okay, so now that I've added that, uh, I'm really excited about my first pick too, and it actually came out last week, which I somehow, I will usually mark if I'm doing that intentionally. This time it was unintentional. I just got my dates wrong, but it was so much fun and kind of what I needed to read in that moment. And that is The Road Trip by Beth O'Leary. So Beth O'Leary wrote The Flat Share and The Switch. And I love The Switch. I haven't actually read The Flat Share, but I loved it. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do another like, fun little English rom-com situation. And that's exactly what this is. So four years ago, when the book opens, Addie and Dylan fell in love under the Provence sun. Addie was spending the summer working as a caretaker at her friend Cherry's like big, fancy, gorgeous Provence villa. And Dylan was, he is a poet, but was a poet and a, a wealthy Oxford grad who was supposed to be vacationing with his entire family at this big old villa. 
but everyone bailed after a big family fight. So Dylan was like, well, I guess I'll just go by myself. So that's what he does. He shows up. She thinks that when they say that, you know, Mr. Uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember what Dylan's last name is, but whatever that is, that she's expecting some like older English guy. So she comes out to greet him and realizes that it's this like very, very attractive guy that looks to be about her age. So they, it's like instant fireworks. They're just super into each other, like from the very, very beginning. And yeah, sparks fly. So it, things would have, I think, gotten there a little faster if it wasn't for the fact that Dylan's kind of pervy uncle <laughs> decides to crash the party. And they're like, I heard the family left you, so I'm here to keep you company instead. So if it wasn't for him, things may have gotten, you know, kindled a little more quickly, but they still, you know, find a way and begin this passionate whirlwind romance and they fall in love in those, you know, few months. So flash forward to the present, Addie and her sister Deb are on their way to that friend Cherry's wedding, the girl who owned that big old villa, her family villa. So she's getting married in rural Scotland there in, in Chichester in, in England. And they've got a co-worker of Cherry's who needed a ride to the wedding too. So they've all just started this journey when they get rear-ended. They're sitting in traffic and boom, it happens. And wouldn't you know, the two men in the other car are Dylan and his best friend Marcus. And that is awkward as hell because we learn very quickly that Dylan and Addie have broken up and it's clear that it did not end well, but we don't really know why. But time is ticking. Dylan's car is wrecked. That wedding is like eight hours away. So against their better judgment, Addie and Deb agree to drive Dylan and Marcus to the wedding. And shockingly, it does not go well. <laughs> the story is told in two timelines. So you get like the then and now and slowly the truth of what happened between Addie and Dylan is revealed in those flashbacks that are peppered in between the absolute ridiculous that ensues when you stick five grown adults in a Mini Cooper, you know, on a really long drive in a hot English summer, two of whom used to date, and each have someone with them that is fiercely defensive and like protective of them, plus, you know, the random co-worker guy who is just literally along for the ride. It's awkward. It's hilarious. It's heartbreaking. It's really tragic as you watch like the slow undoing of what was this really kind of fiery and, and beautiful romance that's kind of marred by insecurity and how it came to dissolve and how they neither one of them is really clearly processed it the way that they probably need to to move forward. It's also a romance, so you know, there's a happily ever after and they're somewhere. I had so much fun with it. I will cautious or ca cautious. I will cautious you. I will caution you one thing, which is that the friend Marcus, I found him absolutely deplorable for most of the book. I wanted to eat him into the sun. He was just so annoying. And ultimately, the reason I wanted to caution about that is that there's a discussion there to be had about like the ways that we cope and change and act towards people when we are going through trauma and or like mental illness issues of our own. And I'm not 100% decided on how I feel about that uh, device, if you will. I, th I think it makes sense. Ultimately, I was just I he was so gaslighting for so much of the book that I again wanted to eat him far, far away. But ultimately, there he does have a redemptive arc. So just stick with it. This one is excellent on audio, like really, really great on audio. I had a great time with it. And I do also want to give some trigger warnings for mentions of sexual assault, it's graph not graphic, mostly off page, uh, and addiction and drug and alcohol abuse. But again, a road trip book with a happily ever after and all kinds of random comedic interludes. It was just so much fun. I'm really, because, you know, knowing, kind of relying on Beth O'Leary for a really fun rom-com. So yeah, that is The Road Trip by Beth O'Leary. I did an author event a few days ago and someone said yeet into the sun and I was like, I don't. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Apparently, I'm. So it had to be explained to me. <laughs> that is amazing. 
please explain what yeet means. And they were like, you got this far without hearing that word yeet? I was like, apparently? <laughs> I don't know what that is. And then you just said it. And I was like, it's like a new car. Yep. You, once you get one, you see it everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> well, you're welcome for being your yeet person. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My next pick is Victim F from Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors by Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn with Nicole Wisensey Egan. Now, uh, before I start talking about this book, I want to just give content warnings up front, all the content warnings, and it's pretty horrible from beginning to end what I'm going to tell you. So if you're not ready or you don't think you want to hear it, you, you're going to want to skip ahead like five minutes because this is the story of a vicious true crime involving home invasion and sexual assault. There's trauma, there's police harassment, police incompetence, police cover-ups. But it is one of the wildest true crime stories I have ever read. Uh, so uh, I'm going to let you skip ahead now. And now I'm going to start telling you about the book. In March 2015, Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn were young physical therapists living in California. Uh, they had been dating on and off. They, like he had a girlfriend, a living girlfriend. And then uh, he broke up with her and started dating Denise. But then he got back together with his living girlfriend. And when the crime takes place, uh, he has broken up with his live-in girlfriend again, and uh, she has moved out, and Denise and Aaron reconcile, and she comes over, they have dinner, they confess that, like, they love each other, and, you know, they couldn't be apart, and everything is happy, and they go to bed. And that very night, they are sleeping when they are woken up by some men who are wearing all black. Uh, they have, like, sort of, like, uh, military gear on. They put these headphones on their heads and blindfold them, and the headphones are telling them, like, to remain calm, that everything's going to be fine, as long, like, just really weird, like, sci-fi kind of stuff. And the the men are, like, going around their house, and they don't know what's going on. They drug Aaron and Denise. They tell them that they were looking for Aaron's ex-girlfriend, but because she's not there, they're going to kidnap Denise. Uh, they tell Aaron that um, they don't want him to call the cops. They install cameras around his house uh, and take some red tape and make a square and tell him that he has to sit in that square until he receives a call from them about the ransom. And then like, just like that, they're gone with Denise and he's been drugged and he falls asleep and he wakes up many hours later and he doesn't know what to do. So he calls his brother because his brother works for the FBI and, and his brother is like, you need to call the cops right away. Well, what happens is he calls the Vallejo, Pol California police department they show up, he tells them what happens, and they're like, oh, this guy murdered his girlfriend and he's trying to cover it up because this is the most ridiculously stupid story we've ever heard. You know, like, who would go through all this trouble of red tape markings and cameras and all this stuff? They take Aaron to the police department. There is no investigation done into the house. There is no crime scene evidence taken at his house. He is held without a lawyer. He is not allowed to see his family. Uh, and he is grilled without sleep. He's given a lie detector test. Uh, no examination of his person is done. They shut off his phone. So when the kidnapper calls him with the ransom demand, the phone goes straight to voicemail and nobody checks it. Meanwhile, Denise has been kidnapped and she was held for three days. Now, let me just back up and say that the Vallejo Police Department has one of the highest records of officer-involved shootings as well as the highest number of harassment claims and lawsuits against them. So this is who they are dealing with. So Denise is held for three days. Her experience is very traumatic. It's in graphic detail. It's very hard to read. I just want to give you that heads up there. Uh, and after three days, she is let go. And she shows up and says, 
I'm Denise Hoskins. I'm the woman that you're looking for. And the police immediately are like, so fake. Like, so fake. Who would let her go? So fake. And they release a statement to the press claiming that she made up her story, that she's a real-life gone girl. Like, she just wants the attention. She's trying to get back at Aaron. She was trying to get some money. And they even talk of prosecuting her for wasting their time. So this couple has just experienced this horrific crime. And now they're immediately being hounded by the press. They're being dragged through the mud on the internet. They're being harassed. They're being doxxed. They can't get hired back. She can't get hired back at her job because they haven't cleared up this case. And and lots of people don't believe her. Uh, Some of her friends and family don't believe her. And it kind of switches from like Aaron was involved to now it's all on Denise. Like this was her like faking this. There's like there's no investigation into this. So now they're traumatized. They can't leave their house. And they're just living with all of this. You know, it's like, it's just astonishing. It is an astonishing story of police corruption, abuse of power, cover-ups. Every time more evidence came to light, they would double down on their theory that this was a hoax and that more and more people were involved. And eventually, Denise and Aaron sue the police department. They sue the police department, even though only about, I see if I'm remembering this correctly, about 2% of police-involved lawsuits end in favor of the plaintiffs. Because they knew the truth and they demanded action. This story is so, like, the, it's so bizarre. I mean, there are so many more details that will have you going, what? 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 I, I mean, it, it's just, and it's horrifying, you know, from the crime down to the response to it. But this is a love story as well. You know, Denise and Aaron, you know, they their belief and support for each other through the whole thing, you know, and it's a very clear look at the victim's side, you know, like what it was like for them to experience these things and, you know, move forward with their trauma and their grief. And it's just, (laughs) it's amazing. It is a lot, but it was just amazing from beginning to end. It is called Victim F, From Crime Victims to Suspects to Survivors by Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn with Nicole Wisensy Egan. That sounds like a doozy. Oh my goodness. I think I said what? Like out loud more than any time (laughs) I've ever read a book because... It's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Oh, the police department are 100% at fault here, but you when she, you hear about, like, what happened, you're like, that's that sounds like a movie, you know? Oh, my God. It did sound, yeah. It sounded like an episode of Criminal Minds. I was like, uh. <laughs> yeah. Oof. It's it it's wild. Ooh, good to know. Okay. Well, I'm going to take us on a little bit of a detour, I suppose, uh, with a book that Yay. I haven't actually <laughs> finished all the way because it requires rereading, even though it's super short. And that is Slipping by Mohamed Khayr, and it's translated by Robin Mosier. So this book, again, it's only like, I think, 250 pages or so, and I haven't finished it because I just have to keep going back to reread passages. And it's not that it's written in any kind of, you know, really difficult language. It's it's lyrical. It is very, I saw this book described as a lucid dream, and that is exactly like how I would describe it. It takes place in Cairo and some nearby Egyptian towns during the Arab Spring, and we meet a struggling journalist and magazine writer named Saif, who is grief-stricken because his girlfriend, uh, ooh, I don't know if it's Aliyah or Aliyah, I'm going to go with Aliyah, was recently killed during a protest when he's been, now he's he's been assigned to accompany this former exile on excursions to unfamiliar places. So again, he's grieving, sort of feeling disillusioned with his job, and then he's asked to go with this man named Bach 
on these excursions. And okay, that sounds like whatever, except that that exile possesses this encyclopedic knowledge of Egypt's like obscure and magical places. So they embark on this journey together to see these elusive corners of the world that the Arab Spring left behind. All along as they go, Bach is regaling Saif with all kinds of mythical stories, some of which have to do with the places that they're visiting and some that don't. There's this place, for example, where giant corpse flowers fall from the sky, and there's another where it's said that you can walk on the you know, walk on the Nile, and of course these are illusions in some way, but again, they're just a bunch of magical places. There's there's so many more. But I have to keep going back because so the way the story is told that you're you're getting these anecdotes that are told from Saif's perspective, and then you're also getting some of those kind of myths peppered in to the point where when I first started reading it, because I knew who the book was about and the characters were named completely differently, I was like, wait, am I reading the right book? And like, yes, it's just that you're getting these other kind of mythical stories peppered in between like the actual story. And at first you're like, are these connected in any way? Like what's where's this headed? And the further you get into the book you do start to realize that there is a thread that connects all of those stories. Again, it's it's so dreamy. Like, I, I don't often say that about books, because sometimes I don't know what that means. But I, I it's the only way I could think of to describe this book. It, it has a little bit of that surreal kind of glossy feeling to it. And I have to keep going back and rereading passages just to kind of like, I guess, check with my own self. Like, is this, is, is what I think is happening happening? Okay, yes, it is. And then you go back. I know that I need to give a trigger warning because it's pretty evident even from the copy that all of these events are working towards both of these men reconciling with like extreme losses and trauma of their own. And I'm, I I don't know how much of that is on the page yet again, because I have to keep going back and rereading, but it's just so beautifully written. The translation on this just feels so, so wonderful. And I have to imagine that it was, that it was a labor of love to do so, to translate it, you know, from Arabic into English and have it still have that beautiful dreamy feel. So I, I highly recommend this. I'm super enjoying it. I'm on a kick lately on book set in Egypt, apparently, but I'm loving it. Like, it's not that it's difficult. I, I want everyone to read this. It just is one that I think you need to take your time with to really absorb like the message that's kind of pulled through those gossamer threads. So yeah, the, if you want to read more work in translation, this is a fantastic one that's getting a lot of buzz. And that is Slipping by Mohamed Khair, translated by Robin Mosher. All right. I have that one around here somewhere. It's on my, my reading plans for sometime this month like every other book <laughs> in the world but i do have it nearby my next pick is the ugly cry a memoir by danielle henderson i love danielle henderson i follow her on instagram she did the the ryan gosling book many years ago like the hey girl like she started that she's just so smart and so funny i i'm obsessed with her cat who i think is named carrot I can't remember. He makes rare appearances, but I'm like, ah, it's the orange cat. And I'm so excited about this memoir because it's so good and I can't wait for everyone to read it. I do want to give content warnings up front for discussions of child abuse, child sexual abuse, and racism. This is just a fantastic memoir that will make you laugh and cry. Possibly ugly cry, like the title says. But when Danielle Henderson was young, or before she was young, I should say, her mother ran away from home. And when she returned, she had a son and another baby on the way, who was Danielle. And Henderson started out her life in an unsafe home, in an unsafe situation, uh, and her mother married a, a violent, abusive man. And it was very unsafe for her and her brother. And she, after a very serious incident, she winds up being raised by 
her grandmother. They bring her to her grandmother's house, which is which is a pretty common occurrence that people don't talk about a lot. But, you know, grandparents raising their grandchildren. And, and it is also a very common occurrence now. Um, but this takes place in the 1980s and 90s. That's when Danielle was young. There's a, a an expression, I don't know who said it, I can't or I can't remember now, that is uh, grandparents and grandchildren get along so well because they have a common enemy, which I always thought was really great. And it's kind of the story here. But also, her grandmother is this strong woman who has a tough love kind of parenting approach um, and quite a sharp tongue. Uh, but also, her love for her grandchildren is fierce. Like, you can tell that that she cares for them and she wants what's best for them. And, you know, they, they clash. You know, she and her grandmother clash because that's, you know, what kids do and that's what parents do, you know, kids and parents, because she is her mother in this situation. And, you know, there's the difference in generations. But, you know, Danielle is healing from trauma and also, you know, trying to navigate their world as a black girl in a predominantly white neighborhood and also, you know, recover from from what happened to her when she was young. And there's lots of pop, pop culture references and stories about when she was young. She was a latchkey kid like most children in the 80s. Um, sometimes, you know, I think about what we were allowed to do. You know, I was eight years old and I was going and staying home by myself, letting myself into the house, you know, and now, like, that would never happen. Like, the neighbors would report it. No child would be allowed to do that. You know, but that was just what you did back then. And, you know, when I read other people talking about it, I'm like, yeah, that's just, that's just what you did. Not that it's great, but, you know, it was fun to read her stories about, you know, when she was on her own, you know, and I I really responded to that. And, you know, Danielle also learns resilience and self-reliance from her grandmother. Uh, her grand, you know, their relationship is the heart of this, of this memoir. And she also learned how to forgive her mother and, and worked out how to get out of this small town. You know, she's now a very successful author, podcaster, and screenwriter. Um, she's just absolutely wonderful. And like somebody's mother, the memoir that I talked about last week, I feel like it's, it's written so well that it's in a way that we can understand the complications of loving the people that hurt you. You know, it's it's easy for us on the outside to say that person did bad things. But, you know, when you're related to them, you know, or you have a relationship with them, it's a lot harder to, to judge them that way or to maybe to, you know, stop loving them or, you know, make decisions about them. It's just a very human, very remarkable memoir. That is The Ugly Cry, a memoir by Danielle Henderson. And now we are going to hear from another sponsor. Okay, Vanessa, what do you have for us? My turn again. This one was so fun. So my next pick is The Marvelous by Claire Kahn. It was just, it was so much fun. If you love mysteries and like gameplay, this is going to be right up your alley. So socialist Jewel Van Hanen is an heiress turned actress turned like influencer type. But the thing she's most known for is this super popular video sharing app called Golden Rule. She surprises everyone when she takes like a mysterious year-long hiatus from the app and then surprises everybody again when she comes back. And this time she's got this big announcement. She is going to invite, she is inviting six Golden Rule users on an all-expenses-paid getaway at her private estate called She's calling the thing like Golden Weekend. Lots of golden things here. <laughs> uh, so at first my hackles went up and I was like, oh my God, is this like an and then there were none situation? It is not. Um, but these six people are selected and they're you know jazzed as hell, obviously. And then when they get to Jules' estate, she hits them with another special annou- announcement 
And that's that the invitees are going to be playing a game that she's calling the cruelest duel. Again, lots of like naming things going on here. And the cruelest duel is this elaborate escape room style situation where the players must compete in or complete, I should say, a series of tasks for a chance at being one of two winners of 500 grand, like $500,000. And the tasks aren't like a scavenger hunt. They're not, you know, go find a red swatter in the pool house. It's not like that. They're actually tailored to test whether the players each have what it takes to win and seem a little bit personalized at times. And that's kind of all I really want to say, so don't spoil anything, but it is a story. Obviously, it's, it's got a mystery element. There's a lot of really fun characters. It's super diverse. Like, the socialite herself, I believe, is biracial, if I remember correctly. The, the story is told from the perspective of three of the players. There's Luna, who is also, I believe, biracial. She's this, like, super fan She's obsessed with unlocking the meaning behind literally everything that Jewel says. Like, she's one of those people who just does that, whether it's on, you know, so Instagram or wherever. She just like, dissects every one of her actions. And then there's uh, another character whose name is escaping me, but she's she describes herself as black, female, and fat. You know, she's an aspiring actor. Uh, Nicole, that's her name. And she kind of attends not 100% under her own will, a little bit under coercion. And then we have Stella, who is a little bit more of a newbie to the fandom, and she's her motives are, you know, slowly to be revealed and yeah that's all i can say about her i, I suppose but again the story is is so much fun because there is that mystery part that it weaves itself throughout because you're trying to figure out like what is the point of this game and, and why and who's gonna win but it's also very much about like found family and this, there's parts of it that feel a little bit chaotic i'll be honest but it's still worth it to get to the end and it was a really nice like palette cleanser it was just fun to read about an escape room situation that's set in this particular kind of setting. I, I haven't read anything like this, I don't think. So yeah, a lot of fun, great representation on the page. And uh, if you you know aren't completely sick of influencer culture, <laughs> even if you are, I think this one will still be a fun read. So that's The Marvelous by Claire Cotton. All right. My last pick today is Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch by Rivka Galgen, which is just this fantastic historical novel Rivka Galgen is an incredible author. Uh, she wrote a book about rats. I think it was last year that I really enjoyed this little story. Uh, and this book is so good. It's set, or it starts out in 1618 in Germany. Katerina Kepler is a widow. She's a, an elderly widow who is living in the small town of Leonberg. She has, you know, children and grandchildren, and she kind of lives alone, and she's a little cranky. And she helps her neighbors... Uh, when they're not feeling well, you know, with with herbal remedies, um, which is, you know, if you know about, you know, witches in historical times is a recipe for disaster because she's successful. She owns her own business. She owns her own property. You know, and her children are also very successful. Uh, so, you know, as these stories go, people get jealous. And the quickest way to see her fall is to accuse her of being a witch. So that is what a neighbor does. A neighbor accuses her of trying to poison her with one of the remedies she gave her. And this is the story of her accusation and her trial and how the story snowballs out of control. And, you know, by the end, many people have accused her, you know, of, you know, appearing as an apparition, of poisoning them, of, of killing their animals, of all kinds of things. And she kind of, like, has this sort of humorous look, like, take on it, even as it's happening to her, you know, just like, these... These people, you know, like, they're so ridiculous. She almost laughs at them, even though her life is at stake now. And this is mostly narrated by Katerina's neighbor, Simon, who is a spectator in all of this. And he's listening to her talk about 
and like what happened. And it's also, you know, based in truth. We only usually hear about the Salem witches here in America um, because that's that's a very famous story, the Salem witches. And actually, uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries, tens of thousands of people were executed for witchcraft, for practicing witchcraft in Europe, which you don't hear about very much here in America. And as much as this is steeped in history, it's also, Galton has twisted it in a way that it's really a smart satire on our present day conditions in this country. It's about mob mentality. It's about fear. It's about gaslighting. You know, like how the townspeople kind of revel in their hate and glee when when things are going wrong for her because they're jealous and they're, you know, afraid of things that they don't know and they've been told that they need to be afraid. But it's also, like I said, it's actually quite funny, too. It's very dry. I've read a lot of witch trial books. You know, my grandmother, seven greats back, was one of the women executed in Salem. And so I've read a lot of books about that. And But this is sort of, it sounds weird to say, this is a fresh take on the whole witchcraft accusation story. But it is, you know, it's a, it's due in part to Galchin's sharp, concise writing. Like, these are perfectly executed sentences. And also, it's based on a true story. Katerina was a real person, and her son was Johannes Kepler, a German astronomer, mathematician, and astrologer who discovered three major laws of planetary motion. And he actually left his work for a while to help his mother with her defense while well, she was defending herself against these witchcraft accusations. This book is magnificent. It has one of my favorite covers of the year. It is a purple color that I just want to live in. It's so simple. I don't understand how it has cast such a spell on me, but I'm just, I look at this cover all the time. I have it facing out on my shelf. Uh, I also just want to do a quick shout out for another book in the fall that I really love that also involves witches. It is called Slewfoot by Brom. It's about witches in New England and also the devil himself who respawns with no idea who he was previously, uh, and he's having a hard time getting behind the whole, like, he's supposed to be evil thing. Uh, he, he just kind of wants to hang out and, and do nothing, um, which is a very funny kind of idea about uh, the devil. But I, content warnings, uh, I forgot, for um, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, uh, for gaslighting and murder, of course, you know, persecution, violence. But this, oh, such a great book. It's called Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch by Rivka Galgen. The book is everything I want. Everything. <laughs> just like put it on hold while you were talking. I want it so bad. <laughs> I really enjoy explorations of like witchcraft stuff in other countries because yeah, I agree. Like most people can like focus on the Salem part, but it really was yep. like responsible for like so thousands and thousands and thousands of deaths all over Europe. And I, mean, I don't find that part fascinating. I just no, you know what it's I horrifying. mean. Horrifying. <laughs> it's absolutely horrifying. Okay, so my next book is one that I'm really excited about too, and that also actually came out last week. But it's so fun and in the. Book Riot favorite series, and that is The Bombay Prince by Sujata Masi, which is the third in the Praveen Mystery series. And Mystery, M-I-S-T-R-Y, Praveen Mystery is the character's name, and this is also a mystery series, a historical series set in 1920s Bombay. I was actually in line at a bakery trying to get breakfast when the galley for this book came through, and so I had my headphones in and didn't realize I was talking out loud. And when it came in, I went, mine! And this little toddler that was kind of waiting off to the side heard me and looked me right in the eyes and responded back, mine! <laughs> Her mom was looking at us like, why are these two... Why is my kid talking to this adult and what is she saying is mine? I'm like, oh, nothing, sorry, it was a book. So that's my embarrassing narrative about this book. But to get back to the book, so Praveen Mystery is Bombay's first female lawyer. And even though she's 
she's been allowed to get the degree. She has, at least, you know, back when the first book came out, she was never allowed to actually practice law. So they're like, fine, we'll let the women study the things, but now you can't actually do the job that you just studied for. But her dad ha- or has a-, a law firm of his own, and so he kind of allows her to work in his firm in the first book, The Widows of Malabar Hill, mainly because she's uniquely suited to help him on a case involving three Muslim widows who are living in Purda. And she, you know, works on that case and solves it, makes a little name for herself, and, you know, here we are two books later. So Bombay Prince takes place in November 1921, right as the Prince of Wales... Uh, Edward is getting ready to come to India on a four-month tour. And there's major unrest in India. People are getting real sick and tired of British rule. They're pushing back against it. And so it's not all that surprising that riots break out at the announcement of Edward's arrival. Then during Edward's royal procession, a young Parsi student falls from a second-story window just as the procession is passing by her college. And the death rattles Praveen because that young woman had just come to her, I think the day before or so, for a legal consultation. And she was asking about the legality of skipping classes on the day that Edward is going to be visiting Bombay. So now Praveen is suspicious that her death may not have been the accident that it's you know being painted as. She feels guilty for not being able to help this woman in her life. And so she promises to get to the bottom of her death you know, to get her justice. But again, Bombay is erupting, like armed British Secret Service are marching the streets. There's, you know, riots. Of, there's still, it's, it's complicated, right? But that's colonial rule. It's, it's it, it, obviously, there's a lot to discuss there. And that's, I think, what I liked the most about this book. Praveen is trying to help this suffering family, but, you know, her own is in danger. It is a really great meditation on female empowerment. There's a lot of great, Stuff to be discussed, I think, with her specifically with her relationship with her dad and her brother and society at large, with this really important historical moment in the background that feels very relevant, right, to you know world events at large and a cycle of history that just continues to sort of repeat itself. There's just a whole lot to love in this book. I've always loved the historical context of the Praveen mystery series, but this one in particular felt very, very timely, uh, and it's just a great mystery in and of itself. So, yeah. That's the next one in the Praveen Mystery Series. It's The Bombay Prince by Sujata Masi, who we love around here. And I can't wait to see. I don't know whether she's actually going to continue the series, but I hope so, because I really love this this character. And that is it for me. All right. Those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I'm finally reading One Last Stop. I feel like I'm the last one to do so, even though it just came out last week. Love Casey McQuiston. I'm like maybe a quarter into the book, and I'm having a lot of fun with it. So that'll be my read as soon as we hang up this call. Nice. I am reading Dune. I mentioned earlier <laughs> the, during Tenlo. I have not read Dune. I have started it like 10 or 12 times, I think, because so many people love this book. So yep. many people that I know are like, this is my favorite book. And I've been like, okay, you know, I've never seen the original movie. And I, you know, so I'll start it, but then I'll be like, oh, I have work reading that I really need to be doing. And I set it down. So I've read the first couple of pages, I don't know, 10 or 12 times. And so I took an assignment where I have to write 5,000 words oh. about Dune. <laughs> and I was like, this will force me to read the book. So, it will. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually reading it now. But I'm also sneaking in uh, The Cabinet by Unsu Kim because Get I loved on. The Plotters and I'm very excited to read this one. And yeah, books, 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 books. So many books. So many books. And that is all for today. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. 
You can find us online. Vanessa and I hang out mostly on Instagram. Vanessa is Buenos Dias SD. I am Friends and Comes Alive. If you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. Thank you to everyone out there who has already done so. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime, happy, happy reading. reading.